We'll hear argument first this morning in case 132 on our original docket, Alabama versus North Carolina. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. North Carolina breached the Southeast Compact in this case. Whether you examine it from the perspective of the sanctions that were imposed by the Commission or whether you evaluate it from the perspective of the repeated statements by the executives of the Commission that there had been a material breach and a repudiation, or whether you examine it from the perspective of the undisputed record that was collected by the Special Master, the conclusion, it seems to me, is inescapable that what North Carolina did here by taking no action between December 1997 and July of 1996 simply does not fulfill the responsibilities that they had, that North Carolina had assumed. And therefore, the only issue should be what is the appropriate remedy for this uh, extraordinary breach. To go to the specific record, just to be clear about this, the Special Master says at page 10 of his report, the parties do not dispute that North Carolina did not take additional steps to pursue a license for a waste facility during that period. Our undisputed statement of facts is that North Carolina took no further steps to license between 1997 Mr. and Mr. Phillips, the, the point that North Carolina makes is it would be throwing away the taxpayers' money to no purpose. That is, what is the point of continuing to pursue a license when North Carolina does not have the funding to continue the process and to open the disposal facility? So North Carolina's point of view is what does it mean to continue to seek a license when they're not going to have the money to get to the end of the line? Right. Well, North Carolina assumed the responsibility more than a decade prior to that time to take all appropriate steps in order to provide for licensing and for construction of a facility. Appropriate steps in that context has to mean something more than simply doing nothing, declaring categorically that you're going to repudiate the agreement and attempting to extort from the compact and its commission additional monies that it is absolutely clear that the Commission has no responsibility to North Carolina to pay. How much much did the Commission give before this? Just did that out of the goodness of its heart? No, it did it with the the approval of the other states in the compact for the purpose of promoting the ultimate objective of the the contract. And and I think that one of the best indications of what what a contract means is the uh, manner in which the parties act under the contract. And that suggests to me that it was never contemplated that North Carolina alone would foot the bill for, for obtaining this license. I, I mean, the language of the, con- of the compact itself, Justice Scalia, is quite plain. It's clear that the Commission has no responsibility to create, to pay for the creation of this, of this facility. That was clear from day one. North Carolina, not only in its legislation authorizing its authority, but also its governor repeatedly saying, we understand that we have a responsibility to create this facility. At that, what cost? At whatever What the cost special master said was, I believe, that there was never an obligation to do it at all costs. They didn't have to bankrupt their treasury to do this. Is that correct? Do you well, accept that as a working proposition? I would say that, that, the, that the State of North Carolina would have, an, have a defense of impossibility if they could argue that going down this path would have bankrupted North Carolina. Well, I think there was certainly a significant amount of evidence that the cost of completing this project was way above any ex- reasonable expectation of the parties at the time of contracting, correct? 
Yes, but, but the payment of $80 million by the Commission was way above what any of the parties expected at the beginning of the process as what, well. What do you believe the evidence shows with respect to the reasonable cost of completing this project? I think it was reasonable to assume that the construction of the facility itself would have cost an additional $75 million. And about a, an additional 34000 to get the license? Probably $34 million So th- I'm sorry, I misspoke. So over $100 million. Right, but the, the — An amount equal to what they had already — everybody had already put in. To be sure. But the, and but the, about how many times greater than the initial estimates? I don't know that there were any initial estimates. I thought it was about recall. 20 or $30 million was initially estimated to, to do this project. I, I doubt that that would have included the full construction. I, I, I'm only going through these to try to get a sense from you of at what point did North Carolina have a right to claim impossibility? You're saying that yeah, — I, I mean, I think North Carolina — first of all, North Carolina never did assert a right of impossibility. Well, it did by saying we can't complete this project. Well, it said it wouldn't complete this project. It, it imposed upon us — it unilaterally imposed upon the other states to the compact the obligation to fund, an obligation none of them had — had assumed under the contract. To be sure, they had provided monies to North Carolina with the expectation that North Carolina would use those monies ultimately to build the project. But the reality is, in 1997, in December, North Carolina unilaterally declared that they were not going to complete the project and that they were going to take no actions further in, in furtherance. So your argument is, then, that they acted two years too late. In, in, when they gave notice that they were not able to go forward, but they were going to keep this thing going. So if the funds should somehow become available, they would have the the uh, they would have things still in place. They wouldn't have terminated right. the effort. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Our, our argument is that you know whether you know so I think there's an open question of whether the withdrawal in '97 would have been in good faith or not. That would be a separate issue. But there is no question that the one thing that a, that a contracting party does not have the right to do is to unilaterally decide to repudiate the agreement, but they get the benefit they of were, the agreement. They were totally up front. They said, look, we can't go forward with this. We haven't got the money. We'll let everything sit to see if someone will come up with the money. That's — it's it, you paint a picture of — repudiating the contract when North Carolina gave notice in 97 that it would have to fold if it didn't get the money. Right. And, and the question then, the, obviously that the, the legal issue that that presents is whether or not a party to a contract who is not entitled to expect the other participants to the agreement to pay any more money or, in fact, any money whatsoever has the authority essentially to ex- attempt to extort that money while continuing to gain the benefits of the contract for an additional year and a half, at that point, then they, then they withdraw. We can debate about whether the withdrawal is in good faith or not. But the bottom line is there is no substantial difference between the repudiation and the complete disregard of the contractual ob- obligations. What were the benefits that North Carolina was getting by paying whatever it was, $400,000? 
to keep it going for another two years? Well, the benefits of being a part of the, com- of the compact is, is all of the powers that the Commission had to deal with other compacts in, in terms of how to license, or, excuse me, license, but how to dispose of waste. They got all of the benefits of being part of a compact during the entirety of that period. So, you know, it was not in their interest to repudiate this agreement or to withdraw from it until they got to the point where they were — where they recognized that they were about to be sanctioned for their failure to comply. Were, were there any benefits to the contract at all until — unless and until there was a waste facility constructed? Well, there were huge benefits, Justice Scalia. Right. The, the Barnwell facility in South Carolina was disposing of wastes and was only going to take wastes from the compact states in the Southeast Compact. So North Carolina had absolute, had ample access to that South Carolina facility that if it had never joined the compact, it never would have had well, At what point did South it. Carolina withdraw? In 1995, Justice Ginsburg. And so they, by 1997, they didn't have any access to Bonwell anymore. Right, but they still had the benefit of the compacts, uh, the Commission's authority to negotiate on behalf of the member states deals with other com- with other compacts for the disposal in, in those facilities, which you otherwise don't have the benefit of. That to be pretty hypothetical. And I, I find it difficult to believe that there is an obligation to commit money and a liability for failure to do so in a compact which says that the state can withdraw at any time. You talk about good faith withdrawal. What would be bad faith withdrawal? North Carolina simply says it's no longer worth our trouble. Well, this would be bad faith withdrawal, where the state assumes, accepts $80 million, goes down a path, is not entitled to any of that money or to any other money, and then unilaterally withdraws. Did it misspent that money? Are you saying the money was misspent? Now, that's an open issue at this point. We haven't analyzed that. That's, that's part of, I think, what would be involved with the last three counts of the, of the complaint. We don't know exactly whether that money was properly spent or not. But, but either way, I think it is important to recognize that even if it, if it were not, quote, misspent, at the end of the day, which entity has the benefit of the $80 million? Is it the six members of the compact today? No. It's North Carolina. If the, if the federal government were to declare tomorrow in response to some terrorist problem that on-site storage of low-level nuclear waste is no longer permissible and that those wastes have got to be disposed of somewhere other, in some other kind of a facility, the state that is, other than Texas, which is about to start one up, but the state that's clearly in the best position to do that today is North Carolina. Why? Because they've got a $134 million jump on everybody, $80 million of the benefit of which was conferred by the, by the Commission and the Compact and the sister states that were a part this of it. Like the unjust- I really don't quite understand a part of your argument. I'll be sure. I'm not sure what happened to the $80 million, and I guess you aren't either. And if, in fact, and maybe we, they had in good faith used that money to try and complete the facility and then decided it's just not worth it, would you still be entitled to get the $80 million back? I, th- I, th- I think if it would be a tougher case if they, if they had taken the $80 million and come to the conclusion of this and, and, the, and there was a finding by the state authorities that this, this facility simply cannot be built consistent with health and safety. I think that would be an argument that we're not entitled to the money back. But what I think you're not entitled to do as North Carolina is to decide unilaterally that more money should be paid, which is not provided for under the agreement, and insist on that as a condition of fulfilling what any is, of its responsibilities what is your position, under the agreement. What do you say the, the state's 
uh, contemplated regarding the financing of these of these projects that the state that was unfortunate enough to be selected as the the, the second state would have to pay the full cost even if it was 200 million dollars and then would uh, uh, how long would it take for that state to to get that money back would it have to wait until you know 80 100 years later to get the benefit of uh, of uh, some other state having to finance a project no I mean, well i mean the working assumption is that the facilities would be in operation for 20 years and and the reality justice alito is that once you have one of these facilities built given that there are not very many of them and they are in, and it would be a monopoly within the compact region you have virtually limited unlimited authority to dictate whatever price you want to require uh, for taking on the disposal. And if you look at the sites that exist, it was true in Barnwell, it's certainly true in Utah and in Washington. I mean, those are licenses to, to print money, essentially, at this point. And the, and the expectation what? I'm sorry. This compact and the other ones, as I, do I understand correctly, Mr. Phillips, that none of these, none of these compacts that were negotiated around the same time, none of them yielded a disposal, an operative disposal facility? None so far. I mean, Texas, I think, is, is, is as far along in this process as, as anyone, and, and, it's, and it's part of a compact. But, you know, they, they, obviously there is a not-in-my-backyard mentality here. But the, at the end of the day, the, the fundamental question remains, you know, what it, who, you know, who bears the responsibility? North Carolina, it wasn't as though North Carolina was the unfortunate recipient of this particular decision and then said, you know, we, we don't want to do this. We're not, we can't pay for this. There's no way we can accomplish this. North Carolina, after having been designated as the host state, affirmatively passed legislation accepting that responsibility and committing the state to actually providing for a facility. Now, Justice Stevens, I agree. If, if it had turned out that as a matter of public health and safety, that's the big bugaboo here, if that had been an <coughs> obstacle, or maybe, Justice Sotomayor, if the expense had been so far out of the range of, of what's conceivable, maybe there's an impossibility element to it. But, but the could I interrupt just a moment? Of course. Let's assume they hadn't taken the $80 million. Let's assume they had sunk all of that money themselves. Right. And they looked and said, it's going to take us another $120 million to complete this. We just can't. What in the compact stopped them from withdrawing? Because the only provision I see in the contract about withdrawing is the one that says once the facility is completed, you have to keep you have to give notice four year notice. Right. So, so I, I, the only thing there's nothing expressed in the contract in the compact that would prevent them from doing that. I do think there is an implied duty of good faith, but in the situation you pose, Your Honor, I don't think there's any question that they acted so, in good faith. Right. Okay. So, assuming they're acting in good faith, I still don't quite understand what the difference is except the fact that they took what you've described in other counts as an unjust enrichment. They got us to give you some money to help you along in this project. But the situation hasn't changed. We can't spend more money. We certainly can't spend the amount of money it will take to complete this project. I'm not sure what that turns that into bad faith other than well, know, claim that other they, than other than the fact that that to say we can't strikes me as utterly implausible to say we don't want to strikes me as well as, but, as but much the more hypothetical arguable. i gave you before you described as good faith just too much money right but the what problem turns was, it into bad faith well 
I think the problem, what turns it into bad faith is taking the $80 million, consistently committing to going forward with it, and then walking away right before you're going to get sanctioned for failure to comply with the, with the agreement. I think those are the elements that Do make it. Do you have any precedent uh, from this Court uh, for reading into a contract between states uh, an obligation of good faith? I, I don't have any, any decision of this Court. I do have an opinion by the D.C. Circuit some years ago that says that every contract carries with it uh, an implied duty of good faith and fair dealing. You may remember then how, that. How do you what, — what is — is that absolutely necessary? Uh, any party state may withdraw from the compact by enacting a law repealing the compact. That sentence seems to me your toughest point, because that's what they did. They simply withdrew. Right. Now, where in the contract is it something that says — I mean, maybe that was foolish to put that in there, but they did put it in. And so how do you deal with that sentence, which is one that Justice Scalia brought up? In well, I, the, only, the only argument we have with respect to that, and it's important to recognize, we don't have to win this issue in order to win the breach of contract claim in this particular Why? case. Why? All right, well, go ahead. Explain. Be- because, well, because there's massive repudiation long before the 19 — you know, the question still is, what do you do with 1997 to 1999? Before they withdraw, they have repudiated the agreement. They have breached it totally. The very essence of the agreement was lost once North Carolina refused to take any steps, much less appropriate. Is there in this implicit that the state of North Carolina, prior to their withdrawal, while they're still acting, will appropriate reasonable amounts of money for this? And take what they're supposed to do is take appropriate steps to license. Do appropriate steps to do what's necessary to get a license. Does this, if we have a lend-lease agreement entered into a treaty, and absolutely ratified, I suppose that if Congress decides not to lend and won't appropriate the money to do it, we are in breach of the treaty. Yes. And I assume if there is a similar agreement here and North Carolina's legislature doesn't appropriate any money, for whatever internal reasons, North Carolina is in breach of the treaty. Do I understand this correctly? Yes, that's absolutely right, Justice Breyer. Is there any authority for the proposition that when a legislature does not appropriate the money that the executive of a state has committed to another state, that state is in breach, irrespective of whose fault it is within the state? I don't know that there's specific authority for that proposition, but, Justice Breyer, it seems to me what you describe there is exquisitely close to what this, what this Court resolved in mobile oil exploration, where Congress passed a statute saying that the administrative side would not be permitted to go forward, and this Court said that action constituted a repudiation of the underlying obligation, even though it was far from clear that there would ever be any exploration or production of oil on, this, on the Outer Continental Shelf sites that were in there. This Court said that when that, — that if an obligor will commit a breach that would of itself give the obligee a claim for damages for total breach so that it so substantially impairs the value of the contract, then the government said it would break or did break an important contractual promise impairing the value of the contract, then the government okay. must give the so companies back the money. So this case then boils down to, am I correct? In the years prior to their withdrawal, did they take the steps, appropriate steps, that this contract obliges them to make? 
Yes, I think you that's say fair. they did. I mean, we have other arguments, obviously. That's, but but that, if but, you but win on, on that we one, should, you we win. should win. In my judgment, that's a t if the, the conduct of North Carolina between 1997 and 1999 is exactly the same conduct that the United States entered into in mobile exploration. And the state of the finding of the Commission in respect to that precise point, and it's called, what is it called, the Impact Commission. Do we have the same thing in mind, the Commission? Is that what it's called? Yes. It's a they had, it, they, the, the ones who are the judge, it says. I believe that they are the sole right, judge. That's what it says. Article 7C. Right. The, the findings in respect to that specific two-year point are what and where are they in the record? Okay. The, that's in the that, — that'll be in the sanctions order that's in the appendix uh, to the, in the record. I think it's around page 400. I will get that for you, Justice Breyer. But the specific finding is that North Carolina had a duty to go forward and, and stopped completely. It repudiated it. In addition to that, when North Carolina announced that it was shutting down the project and that it was not going forward, that it was just going to run out and wait and, and hope, frankly, that additional funding would come forward, the, the, the compact, the, the director of the compact specifically wrote to the governor twice saying, these are acts in repudiation and in violation of the agreement. It is but your you responsibility. Also, you, said, you said in your brief that the, in 1997, uh, the, Commission came forward with some kind of additional funding proposal, which North Carolina came down. Refused. Right. What 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 was that? The the basic proposal, the the memorandum, the draft memorandum of understanding would have would have led to the commission providing, I think, about twenty one million dollars, and the generators in the southeast states. Uh, providing a loan to North Carolina of an additional, I think it was $13 million, because I think that's where the $34 million comes from for the, for the finalized elements of, of getting a license put in place. So we, we had them, you know, we thought we had in place an offer to fund. I mean, that's what makes why did Carolina. North, why did North Carolina turn it down? You know, you might want to ask Mr. Bellinger that question. They didn't, they didn't provide us with any explanation for why they didn't, why but they you, turned it down. you say there was a package that there was a, a, an offer in place where the commission would pay X and the generators would kick in an additional amount as Right. Well. That would have been a loan. And that was — that everybody had signed — everybody was part of that offer had signed on to it. Right. Everybody on our side had agreed to that, including the, the other members of the compact. Why, why did they agree to it? Because the whole — Once again, they're, they're just tenderhearted? I mean, even though North Carolina had an obligation to fund all of it? They just come forward and say, "Yes, extort us." I mean, I well, you know, when you when you've got the power to extort, uh, you know, the the temptation to go down that path, Justice Scalia, is obviously pretty strong. And and the reason they did I it was, I suggest, it's not the power to extort; it's the power to withdraw. And that power to withdraw suggests that there is no absolute obligation to come up with the funding. The two seem to me so so inconsistent with, with, with one another. Well, the difficulty is you can withdraw at any time. Right. But, but remember, you're talking now also <laughs> about the Commission and the other compact states having sunk $80 million in the investment to get this site up and running. So we, we've, I mean, we've already got $80 million Would your position the whole. be the same if it were $20 million? Yes, our position would be exactly the same. So whatever the, the, the Commission contributed, in other words, it doesn't have to be enough to trigger an obligation on the part of North Carolina 
to move forward. I assume there's some level where you would say, you know, they took their chances and it didn't work out, as opposed to they obviously committed in light of the money they accepted. Well, I, I think the answer to your question is, you know, the question is, what is the, what's the appropriate remedy for the particular breach in, in any given case? In this context, if we were talking about a couple thousand dollars. I don't think so. Dollars. I think it's a question of whether there's a breach. I would say that if you gave them a million dollars, you should not view that as, well, we've supported your efforts. You are committed to do this, uh, no matter how much it costs, because we've given you a million dollars. It seems to me at some point the amount becomes pertinent in assessing whether you have a claim. But I, I — well, I think the ultimate question is still, what is the obligation? And Justice Breyer identified it, I think, quite precisely. And again, this is only with respect to count two and that breach claim. But our argument there is that they had a responsibility from December 1997 until July of 1999 to take appropriate steps. And they massively repudiated that obligation and repudiated the entirety my, my, my of, problem of, remains of the contract. With that answer — is that you earlier said that they could, forgetting if they didn't take any money, under the terms of this compact, and Justice Scalia has been noting this repeatedly, have withdrawn at any time because they didn't want to sink any more money into this project. Is that correct? Yes, subject to what I would think was a duty of good faith. Well, let's put aside that that. duty of good faith, because with that duty of good faith, you're suggesting that merely because they took a million, that's what the Chief Justice is asking you, or 80 million, that that somehow converted or changed the express terms of the contract and bound them in some way to find funding that they chose not to. That, that's really the argument I'm hearing. No, I, don't, I, I think it's more subtle than that, Justice Sotomayor. I mean, my point is they always had an obligation to take appropriate steps to get licensed. That was an obligation that lasted until they withdrew. And from, from December 1997 on, they refused to take any steps toward getting a license. And we don't know today whether something could have happened in that year and a half that might have changed the entire dynamic of this and allowed it to, in fact, be completed in a way that all of the parties would have been satisfied with. May I ask you just one question on the sovereign immunity issue? Of course. Is there any factual development that needs to occur before the special master um, to address the legal questions that have been presented, and I see the legal questions as whether or not, in fact, the claim belongs to the Commission or to the states for the $80 million and the um, $10 million in in lost revenue. Is there any factual development that needs to occur? Or is that a pure legal question based on the arguments that are contained in the briefs before us? I I think it's a pure legal argument. I think we have put forward everything before the special master that we think is relevant for for a disposition of. What is there in the record that shows that the claims of the states are identical to the claim the commission is asserting, which was the uh, case, which was the instance in, in, in the Arizona California case? Right. The bill of complaint itself doesn't distinguish between claims based on any particular party. They list the parties and they list the claims, and there's no effort to mix and match as between them. Well, it seems to me that it's the obligation of the Commission to show that there's an absolute parallel between the claims, and I I just don't see where I can uh, 
in, 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 infer from the record or conclude that that is the case. And, and, if, the, and if that is not so, then the commission uh, is not like the Indian tribes in the Arizona case. Well, I, I would think at a minimum we are very much like the uh, private oil companies in the Maryland versus Louisiana case in any event where, you know, the, the claims were out there. It was far from clear exactly how those claims were going to play out in one way or another. And this Court didn't sit down and say, we have to sort that out ahead of going forward with the litigation. What the Court said was, these all look to be pretty close, and, and there's no basis on which to assume that they're doing more, that they're asking for more, and therefore there's no 11th Amendment problem. And, and of course, remember, the special master has held open the possibility that if, it, for some reason, the claims of the commission were to deviate from the claims of, the, of any of the compact states, which, as far as I can tell to, to this point, they have, they have not deviated one iota, then the special master would allow North Carolina to revisit, uh, to renew but, its no, motion at that point. Isn't there an obligation before we exercise original jurisdiction to ensure that there is at least a potential viable claim by the states that they have a cause of action? I mean, that then becomes a legal question. Is the compact, is the commission an agent? Does, do the states own these revenues, well, you're suggesting that — But that — but see, it seems to me, Justice Sotomayor, what you're doing there is collapsing the question on the merits on, into the jurisdictional But we do that all the instance. time, for example, with, with sovereign immunity. We, we right. tell district courts when there's a sovereign immunity issue, do the — whatever discovery you need on the question, but address it because it's jurisdictional. Right. All, there has to be a basis for the claim. Right. Although this this court has also recognized in Georgia versus the United States, for instance, that if if there are clearly claims that exist that are legitimately uh, litigable, notwithstanding the Eleventh Amendment, and there may be some question about others, that the court nevertheless should go forward and figure I, I, out which I'm ones not, work and I'm not, which ones don't. I don't question that the states may have some legitimate claims. The question is, do they have legitimate claims to what the commission? Is seeking. I think that's the question. Right. But, and, and I think the answer to that is, just as the special master said, it's premature to try to judge that until we get to a point in the litigation where it becomes clear that there is some departure between what the states are doing and what the commission is doing. Well, I'm, I'm conscious of your white light, but it does seem to me that the commission is, as, is asking for the money for itself. No, the commission is asking for the money uh, <laughs> on behalf of the of the compact states, and the compact states are asking for the money on their own behalf. I do think it's a, an easier vehicle for the court to be able to provide a remedy by giving money under these circumstances. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Needler? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The United States has participated in, in this case both uh, at the Court's invitation at the motion for leave to file stage and then before the Special Master, primarily on the issues that were addressed in the Special Master's preliminary report, which go to uh, questions of the assertion of Eleventh Amendment immunity in original actions, as well as the structure of the compact and the compact's power to assess monetary sanctions itself. Today, we make two principal arguments. One, that the uh, Court should deny uh, North Carolina's motion to dismiss the Commission as a party, rejecting at this time, or for the time being, the assertion of Eleventh Amendment immunity. And second, that the uh, Court uh, should deny 
uh, the claim that the Commission has the power itself to impose monetary sanctions under Article 7F. That's not to say that the State's party may not seek monetary relief, appropriate monetary relief themselves in an original action in this Court. It's only to say that the Compact Commission is not a, a forum established by the Compact itself, which is not only a compact between the States, but an act of Congress uh, uh, to do that. Can I ask you, what is the policy advantage of the rule you're proposing with respect to the first question, the, the joinder of the Commission in this original action, of us proceeding to answer substantive questions about the interpretation of the compact, et cetera, without addressing initially the right of the Commission to bring this action as an original action at all. It seems to be putting um, the cart before the horse or, uh, because I'm not sure why we should be reaching the merits, deciding the merits before identifying which are the parties and what claims they have before us. Well, I, I I think, uh, as Mr. Phillips suggested, this Court's decision in, in the United States versus Georgia establishes the Court is not required to, and in some circumstances it, it, it may be possible to dispose of the case uh, on, on the merits, uh, because uh, the plaintiff states in this case, I think, undoubtedly but have But this cause one of, won't. Well, the plaintiff states undoubtedly have a cause of action for breach of the compact. They are parties to the compact. And as parties to the compact, they can bring an action whether or not the Commission is properly before, uh, uh, before the Court. And the question of whether the uh, North Carolina violated the compact, therefore, can be adjudicated solely on the basis of, of the plaintiff state's claim without having to reach the question of, of whether the Commission uh, could properly be made a party. If this Court were to agree with the Special Master that there was no violation of the compact, then the question of whether the Commission could be uh, could also bring that claim and what, what remedy there might be for that, uh, either to the States or to the Commission, would never have to be, uh, to be reached. So there is, I think, some efficiency uh, with, with respect to that. But there's, on the yeah, 11th Mr. Amendment Needle, question. Mr. Sorry. Needle, do we have any decision that deals with the standing of a Commission to sue a state in its own right, or this is a novel question. This is this is a novel question, as 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 far as I as far as I'm aware, um, and and that may be one reason why the court would prefer not to uh, specifically address the question. But I but I do think on the on the basic principles of Eleventh Amendment immunity that this court's decision in Arizona versus California, at least at this stage of the case, is dispositive, because there uh, the, the court concluded that the states. Because the United States had intervened, they had no assertion of 11th Amendment immunity with respect to the subject matter of the dispute, as the Court put it. The tribes were not bringing any new claims or issues uh, before uh, the Court, and therefore the judicial power of this Court would not be enlarged and the state's sovereign immunity would not be compromised by the Indian tribes' participation in the case. We think that's an important principle, at least with respect to Indian tribes, who this Court recognized. In but, but here the Commission is seeking sums for itself. Uh, what, what assurance do we have uh, that the Commission, if it received the money, uh, would give it back to the states exactly in the ratio the states de demanded? Well, I, I don't think I, the Court I, has I, to I think it's their obligation uh, to show the complete parallel of the between the, between the claims, and that that has not been done. Well, uh, two, two things about that. In Maryland versus Louisiana, which was a suit brought by a number of states uh, 
to challenge a, a, a Louisiana tax on Commerce Clause grounds. That case went forward uh, on the suit of, the, of those states. The, the natural gas companies who paid the tax were permitted to intervene, and the Court uh, did that notwithstanding the Eleventh Amendment. Surely the, the claim of the states, parents patriae, was not identical to the claims of the individual natural gas companies uh, to, to get a refund on their own behalf, but the Court nonetheless allowed them to intervene, and the Court's judgment in that case uh, awarded or required the State of Louisiana to make refunds to, uh, to all uh, taxpayers. So I, I, I don't think, especially in an original action where the State has a certain parent patriae responsibility, I don't think that the claims have to be identical in the precise way that they were in, in, uh, in Arizona versus Mr. California. Mr. Needler, can I ask you sort of a basic question about the Eleventh Amendment argument? You always, you framed it entirely in terms of the Eleventh Amendment, but is there not also a common law immunity that the States can plead against uh, non-sovereigns? Uh, yes, well, although I, I think, I think, uh, I don't know whether this falls within the precise terms of the 11th Amendment. It would depend on whether the Compact Commission is regarded as a citizen of another state, which I think it would not be. But, yes, there would be the, the principle recognized in Alden. But I, the, the principles that I'm uh, describing here, I think, would apply equally to that immunity as they would to the 11th Why, why is it go back, back to the word sanctions? When I read the word sanctions in the law, the thing that comes to my mind first and foremost is some money, like a fine and sort of second imprisonment. But paying a fine, that, that seems to me the most primitive and basic sanction of anything. And, and uh, why, why and it, particularly if, say, the, the fine was limited to giving back money you previously took. So, so why wouldn't you read this clause here, which says including, and then it doesn't mention money, but it includes some other things, and you'd say, well, sure, they include the other things because the word sanction doesn't automatically call to mind those other things, but it does automatically call to mind fine. I, I, if there, there are several points that I think are important to, to bear in mind with this. I, I think this Court has always recognized that monetary liability on the part of a state is distinct from prospective uh, relief, and I think the Court should not lightly assume that states have agreed to have a non-judicial forum like a compact. Well, are we supposed to? Are we supposed to treat compacts among states? as if we are uh, dealing with those who uh, want to impose obligations on the states? Well, no, Here aren't we trying to say what obligations did the states themselves want to impose on themselves? Uh, yes, and, and if, if, as we point out at pages 26 and 27 of our, of our brief, there were three, it's actually four compacts that were an, adopted or approved in the very same Act of Congress, which specifically provide for monetary sanctions or monetary, monetary remedies, which shows that the compacting parties knew how to do it when they wanted to. But beyond that, I think it's important to look at the overall uh, structure of Article 7, where the sanctions power appears. First of all, <coughs> Article 7, 7F, which is on page 19A of the blue brief, uh, re refers to any party state which fails to comply, etc., may be subject to sanctions, including suspension of rights under the compact and revocation. Those are all forward-looking uh, sanctions. But, but I think what really reinforces that is if you look at the title of Article 7, which is on page 17a, uh, it, it says uh, it deals with eligible parties, withdrawal, revocation, entry into force, and termination. Article 7 is all about membership in the in the, uh, in the Commission. The, the Commission's powers, by contrast, are set out in Article 4 of the, of the Compact. Uh, there are enumerated powers there. And, for example, uh, Article uh, 4E11 on page 11A, 
the only enumerated power with respect to sanctions there at the bottom of 11A is to revoke the membership of a party state in accordance with Article 7F. One would think if, the, if there was an extraordinary power to grant monetary sanctions that it would have appeared in the enumerated powers. And, in fact, in the one compact adopted at the same time that provides for imposition of fines, it actually appears in the enumerated powers portion of the relevant compact, not in the membership. And, Justice Breyer, you asked about Section Article 7C with respect to the uh, power of the Commission to be the judge uh, of, of, of certain matters. Uh, it's, I think it's pretty clear that what that's driving at is the Commission being the judge of the qualifications of the, of the States and the members of the Commission appointed by the States to participate. It's like the power of any legislative body, the power of Congress, to determine the qualifications of someone who's, who's, about, who's been voted in, should that person be seated. I think Article 7C uh, is, is directed at well, that. It adds. It, adds. Power it starts qualifications. It says it's the judge of qualification, and it's the judge of their compliance with the conditions and requirements of this compact. But if you continue, and the, and laws, the laws of the states relating to the enactment of the right, compact. Right, but, but the, enact, the laws of the party, if I may finish, the laws uh, of the party state, the final phrase relating to the enactment of the compact, I think uh, would modify uh, the qualifications, uh, compliance with the conditions and requirements of the compact uh, with respect to membership. Again, I think that comes from the first part of Article 7C, but I think it's, it's the overall thrust of Article 7 that it deals with membership. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Mr. Dellinger. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and um, may it <clears throat> please the Court. I think I should begin with a simple question that my grandson asked you, which is, why did North Carolina quit? Uh, which I think sheds light on what its obligations were and what the understanding was. This is a compact that is not based upon a coercive model. You could have one where states, all the states are required to remain in the compact, withdrawal is a nullity, the Commission can enforce financial sanctions, and the compact members waive sovereign immunity and can be sued in federal court. This compact is based on a consensual model where it, each, each state can withdraw, and therefore the compact has to be in the rough financial interest of each of the states at any point in time, which you is took, You took $80 million, and they got nothing for it. Uh, <coughs> That would be a question your grandson might ask. <laughs> what did you do with the $80 million? The $80 million came from, not the state, the statement that the states gave North Carolina $80 million and North Carolina has kept it and didn't give it back is a shorthand that is misleading in every single respect. The funds, of course, didn't come from the states. They contributed $25,000 apiece. It came from charges on generators from all over the country. The funds went to the authority established under North Carolina law and could only be used for the purposes of the low-level waste uh, authority. And, indeed, they all were used for the purposes of the low-level waste authority. The master uh, assumes that, that um, all — How did that help the other compacting states, giving them the $80 million of North Carolina walking away? Well, uh, Justice Sotomayor, no one was helped by this process or the process of the other compacts, none of which resulted in a 
in a facility. But what North Carolina did was to carry out its responsibilities to take appropriate steps, and as I will show in a moment, fully in accord with the understanding of the Commission and North Carolina that they would be uh, — it would be jointly financed, even though the Commission had no legal obligation. But the key reason — I'm hard-pressed to understand where that comes from under the terms of the contract. Uh, the compact, the compact expressly says that none of the contracting states have any liabilities with respect to this. That is correct. And it says that the commission, commission does not have any legal obligation exactly. under the compact to fund it either. But it was because this is a consensual compact and because of the right to withdrawal, as the master noted, um, it would have been surprising if a facility were constructed without significant assistance from the states that were not the host state because of the right to withdraw, and that indeed was recognized from the very beginning. For example, in 1996, when the, uh, the chairman of the commission was hoping to speed up the completion the chairman noted that the opening of a new regional facility in North Carolina would ensure a source of revenues for site development in the third host state. Indeed, it's not surprising that from the beginning of the compact, the commission provided a substantial amount of the funding because North Carolina could have withdrawn at any point. And the commission repeatedly recognized that it was, quote, necessary and appropriate and reasonable and equitable for the Commission to contribute to this. Mr. Phillips cites the North Carolina legislation, water, the North Carolina legislation, which notes that one, among the Commission's, uh, the authority's corporate powers when it sets up the authority or the financing, but the North Carolina legislation as the Commission expressly recognized and cited in providing the money, provides that North Carolina may accept funds from its General Assembly. The North Carolina Authority may accept funds from the North Carolina General Assembly, from the Commission Compact, from other states of the Federal Government, or from generators. And they begin to say it's necessary and appropriate at every step. They, the, the Commission says that in in February of 88, October of 89, September of 92, November of 92, reasonable and equitable to provide this funding. And, of course, it makes sense given the consensual nature of the compact. So what happened? Why did North Carolina quit? What happened was, because of the right to withdraw, South Carolina withdrew in 1995. When South Carolina withdrew, this, of course, deprived the Commission of a ready source of funding from the fees that were being paid to the facility in Barnwell, South Carolina. But much or of equal significance is the fact that South Carolina, having withdrawn, no longer had to comply with the compact requirement that South Carolina cease operating a facility on December 31, 1992. Why was that important? Because the compact creates, as Mr. Phillips noted, something like a monopoly within the region. And when you're financing the facility, you know, if you're the financing authority, that you will have a captive market. 
Okay, I see. Unless so, you, unless states can withdraw. Uh, yes. So, so I, I was thinking of this is what we have are a group of states, each of whom feels it's necessary to build a cholera plant. And they know that the cholera plant will be hated by everybody in their state, but it's necessary. So they each say, we'll undertake it, okay? But the deal is you do too. Now that's their basic deal. I don't know that they ever would have entered into this as part of the basic deal is state A depends for four years on State B doing it, but when it's State A's turn, they run away. Well, that's the deal. They can run away. But in addition, take $80 million? Okay. That's where we are back with the Chief's question. Now, I don't know whether it is an appropriate step or not an appropriate step to keep the $80 million, as well as running away. But it seems to me that we have an arbitrator that was supposed to decide whether it was or whether it wasn't. And they said it was an, uh, an appropriate step. They foresaw you would take the $80 million, never give it back, at least. But the Commission thinks it isn't. And the arbitrator paid no attention whatsoever to the Commission. And what the Commission says in the language that I quoted is that the Commission is the judge of the member's compliance with the requirements of this contract. So when I read that, I think, surely, he should have paid some attention to the fact that the Commission thought that what was keeping the $80 million was not an appropriate step. Now, there we are. That's my question. And the only answer I've heard so far is if I read the less rest of the sentence, it talks about laws of states relating to the enactment of this contract, compact. And I don't know that you read enactment so narrowly to refer to laws that talked about how you adopt it. <clears throat> Might be a whole lot of laws. I guess you pay attention to all of them. So I don't see what that last phrase has to do with it. But anyway, that's my basic question in the case. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll answer them in, in reverse order, the keeping the $80 million and the Commission's judgment about that. Their argument is either that the, you know, the Commission is somehow the sole judge of these issues or that there's some, that you should treat a state as something like a regulated industry uh, under an agency model. And they, and they point to uh, 7C, or at least the part of 7C that they leave in their quote, uh, as establishing that. And what I think Mr. Needler was attempting to say when his time ran out is that if you just read 7C, it's about membership. A 7C is in a five-provision sequence, A, B, C, D, and E. A lists the initial state members. B says how other states can become members. D provides that the first three states which enact and pay their fees will bring the compact into existence. And E states that members of other compacts are not eligible for membership. Then C in the middle says that each state shall be declared a party state upon payment of the fees and enactment. And the Commission is the judge of the qualifications of the party states and of its members and their compliance with the conditions and requirements of the compact, and if I may go dot, 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 relating to the enactment of this compact. Now, that phrase relating to the enactment might refer just to the preceding uh, phrase about laws of the party states, but Mr. Needler and I both read it more naturally in the context of the Commission as judge that this is about how you judge who's, who's a member. 
It is in that sense like the uh, House of Representatives provision they quote, except it doesn't say sole judge. So in your opinion, the commission is not the judge of anything other well, than not with So therefore, the six pages or so of this compact that has to do with a lot of detailed issues that might appear before the commission, it is not the judge of whether there is compliance with respect those issues, because this concerns to, only membership. With respect to parties to the compact, the commission, of course, has to interpret the compact when it engages in its sanction authority. If it's going to sanction a state that is blocking the transmit of other states, it has to interpret what it is applied. I think what the Council is arguing that it was entitled to some special deference. And what the Master is saying is, given the right to withdraw, why should North Carolina, why should it be allowed any deference over a determination about a state that's not a party to the compact? It was not required to, I'm not a party to, at that point, to the compact. Now, I, I do want to answer your question about North Carolina keeping the money, because this is important. Where be, did, before you get to that, while we're on uh, 7C, I'm not clear on how you're reading that last section. Is the last phrase relating to the enactment of this compact, is it your position that that phrase is joined not only with the immediately preceding words, the laws of the party states relating to the enactment of this compact, but that it also refers back to compliance with the conditions and requirements of this compact relating to the enactment of this compact. Yes, I am. And that's not grammatically compelled. It is permitted. It certainly isn't grammatically compelled, but does it make any sense? It, uh, yes. Conditions and requirements relating to the enactment of the compact? Yes. This is about it's, — it's not very beautifully done, but it's about the Commission judging who becomes a member in A, B, C, D, and E. And as Mr. Needler noted, in the other compacts that were based on a model, this uh, — the seventh article is all about eligibility for membership. The powers and sanctions and uh, parts are elsewhere uh, in the compact. Are you relying on the caption to Article 7, eligible parties withdrawal, revocation, entry into force, termination? The caption to Article 7. Y yes, and it's, it's, it's also captions ab about that subject. But if I may return to the question of who's got the money, the $80 million coming from fees generated by users around the country went through the Commission to the authority. It was set up in a special separate account just for the purposes of the authority. All of the funds were expended over this process of a massive amount of studies that were done. Not a penny of it could ever be spent by the North Carolina General Assembly for any purposes Mr. Dellinger, whatsoever. What of, what of Mr. Phillips' argument that that $80 million gave North Carolina a leg up should there ever be any revival of the development of a disposal facilities. North Carolina is much better situated than anyone else to do this because they've already sunk $80,000 into pursuing a license. Well, it has been 10 or 12 years since this uh, occurred, Justice Ginsburg, and there has been no effort and no plan in North Carolina to build 
a facility and to begin the licensing process anew, some of the information they re the authority retained, which would be of use to the Commission anywhere, whether there's any site-specific information that would still be good 15 or 20 years out, I think it's just pure uh, speculation. Take North a hypothetical case where uh, North Carolina did have a real advantage and, a, and they used the money to create a, a facility. Would that uh, bear on the unjust enrichment claim or even the sanctions claim? Yes, it might well bear on the unjust enrichment if there was, you know, an enrichment. What happened here is that the North Carolina General Assembly appropriated money that went to the authority, properly considered North Carolina. The Commission provided money to the authority. The North Carolina General Assembly provided money for the authority. All the funds were spent. The only state that contributed money to this process was North Carolina, and North Carolina contributed $34 million. Now, why did they uh, — I think one of the most useful documents we have is in — I just want to be sure. Yes, you said the only state that contributed money to the Commission was North Carolina? I just want to make sure I heard that. Uh, every state contributed $25,000 to, to, to sign. Right. So, but aside from that, North Carolina General Assembly appropriated $34 million to the North Carolina Authority, the, the Waste Disposal Authority. They were the only state to do so. So $80 million had come from the fees generated at Barnwell, $34 million from North Carolina. And the um, — what happened was, once South Carolina withdrew from the compact, was liberated from its obligation to close, was announcing that it was now going to continue and it's open to the world, they had a cost advantage and a location advantage over uh, North Carolina. So in, 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 in 1996, Joint Supplemental Fact uh, Brief at uh, Appendix at page 143 is where the head of the North Carolina Authority writes to the head of the Commission and notes that with the, draw, with the withdrawal of South Carolina and their decision to continue the operation at Barnwell, the financing options have been substantially changed. Under the current compact, any state can withdraw up until the North Carolina facility becomes operational. With an available alternative disposal facility now in South Carolina, there is no assurance to potential bondholders or financiers that there will be a revenue stream from which to repay any indebtedness. Therefore, the authority is in a position where the intended vehicles for financing are no longer possible. One possibility is to modify the compact to preclude withdrawal from the compact once the license is issued for the North Carolina facility, and that would, uh, such an amendment uh, would uh, allow future use of the facility would be assured, and revenue financing could be considered. It was not practical to submit that to all seven of the other, uh, all seven legislatures and to Congress, but the other problem is it would not have, its, its passage would by no means have been assured. The states at that moment could either stay in or go. So North Carolina's faced after South Carolina's withdrawal with the prospect of advancing, trying to advance bonds for another at minimum of $75 million for construction costs, which would bring the whole project up to $223 million, close to a quarter of a billion dollars, 
and with now a South Carolina facility that is closer to every state in the compact except Virginia, and where, because it was built in 1981, it has a competitive cost advantage. So why is Georgia going to stay in the compact when it has what may be a, 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 a less costly and less distant alternative in going to Barnwell, South Carolina? Why, why, why would anyone stay in the contract? I take it that your point, which is an awfully good one, is that this compact was designed, like others, to solve a political problem. It's necessary for the country to store low-level radioactive waste necessary for health and safety. But because of the politics and people's understanding incomplete, no one wants it. And so now the states have formed a series of compacts. And we're told in an amicus brief that if this compact is interpreted to allow one state to take advantage of another state's having done so for years and then run away and keep $80 million to boot, it will be impossible for many other states to resist that same route. And that will be the end of compacts to the United States. And what we will have is low-level waste without storage. That's argument roughly that's made in an amicus brief in this case. And I would like to know your opinion. My response to that is that the amicus suggestion that a decision for North Carolina would impair the very useful mechanism of interstate compacts has it exactly backwards. States establishing compacts remain entirely free to include or add provisions limiting the right to withdraw, permitting the imposition of sanctions, including financial sanctions, imposing those on states that are no longer members, defining whether the limits will be a million dollars or a hundred billion for what they will impose are no limits at all, and, as the Central Compact did, requiring a waiver of sovereign immunity so that these judgments can be enforced in federal court. All that's possible. But a decision in whether or not you decide for North Carolina, if that's what you wanted a compact, you can have that compact. And nothing in a decision for North Carolina would change that. A decision in favor of North Carolina would, in fact, benefit the compacting process because it would provide assurances to state legislators that you can pick up a copy of the proposed compact and read it and know that that is the extent of the liabilities to which you're imposing, you're exposing your state, and that is the limit uh, of the obligations you are taking on. To, in, this to case, in this case, how did it come about that the uh, right to withdrawal any time until the second plant was operable, was that, that was at North Carolina's proposal after it was designated to be the site? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, the original compact had no limits whatsoever on withdrawal. And when North Carolina was chosen as a site, it proposed it's a necessary condition to its uh, uh, not, not withdrawing, that the compact be admitted to add a provision, 7H, which would say that after 30 days after the second facility becomes operational, no state may withdraw without the consent of all the other states. So North, North Carolina added a limitation on the, uh, at their behest, a limitation on the right to withdraw. When South Carolina pulled out, it was clear that that limitation on the right to withdraw wasn't good enough because it meant that states could withdraw at any time up until 
the new facility became operational, in which case it was going to be too late if they pulled out then and went to, to Barnwell. That made it unbondable because there's no guaranteed. What, what made it possible to contemplate financing this by bonds and by other financing mechanisms was the insurance of a market and the right to withdraw. Well, why didn't you withdraw? I mean, all this is very good. You had that absolute right to withdraw, but you didn't withdraw. And when was it? 97. You went on for two years, still uh, as a member of the compact and still subject to obligations under the compact. Uh, how could it be said that you were taking all appropriate steps? Well, what is the language? All Yes, appropriate steps to yeah. ensure that a license took no is steps at all. Pain. You took zero steps. What, North Why didn't you withdraw? Because North Carolina hoped that, <coughs> and no longer spending two million a year, spent half a million to get to keep the authority going. North Carolina kept open the possibility that there would be some possible financing that might allow this project to be completed. They did not. As Mr. Phillips suggested, I think, uh, in era, they did not have access by staying in the compact to the facility at Barnwell, South Carolina. South Carolina was uh, it would close that to North Carolina. So, so, so they but, had but, no benefit but, from the, the but compact. But the steps North years. Carolina took for those last 19 months were exactly the steps that were appropriate. Because they did not have an obligation to fund this at whatever cost, and because they were willing North Carolina's willingness to continue the same ratio of funding that had been a part of the process for the preceding eight years was not going to provide the sums necessary to complete it. It would have been a waste and a squandering of the money of North Carolina's taxpayers and the Commission to take any steps that required the expenditure. What? You're not arguing impossibility, though. I mean, you're, you're the other side. No, Justice Clay, I'm not arguing that it's impossible. What, what I'm arguing is that if North Carolina had continued the level of funding, about $3 million a year on, on average, North Carolina had been contributing the commission, an average of $7 million had been. If North Carolina had contributed that, as the master said, it would not have come close after the withdrawal of South Carolina. It would not have come close to providing the funds needed to complete the facility. Therefore, any funds expended would have been wasteful and inappropriate. Mr. Dellinger, your brief makes, uh, I think the reply brief, made some reference to North Carolina's attempting to get funding from another source after Barnwell. The revenues from Barnwell were no longer available to it. I think in, in your reply brief you make some reference to an effort on North Carolina's part to get what, what what was that? Well, the uh, the document I cited from December 1396 begins to set out some of the uh, proposals. One proposal, for example, was to ask generators, major generators, uh, to take an equity position uh, in the authority. Uh, that the North Carolina General Assembly would continue its funding at the same rate it had till the last day. North Carolina was willing to spend at that rate. Well, what, what you just said, I may not have understood, but I thought you said in response to Justice Scalia that during 1997 and 98, 
when he said, why didn't you take appropriate steps, that you said you didn't do anything and that was the appropriate step. Is that right? But if, the, if you said that, if I yes. heard you correctly. All right. But then it shows in the, in the special master's report that during that time you received from the commission funds over $7 million. So you may not have done anything, but you did take $7 million at that time from other people. And so they're saying, fine, if you didn't take anything, didn't do anything, and that was the appropriate step, why isn't it the appropriate step now to give us the $7 million back? Uh, Justice Bryant, there is a um, no, I, there is uh, a disconnect between when funds are expended and when they are paid into. There's some deficit financing so that the Commission's payment in 1998 would have been to uh, provide for expenditures that occurred earlier. So there was there there's no and there's no suggestion that there's any money left over. And and I mean, look at North Carolina doesn't never had that money. It went to the authority in a separate and dedicated uh, fund that could only North Carolina continue to fund the authority during this interim yes. period? Yes. North Carolina spent half a million dollars a year to fund the authority for the remaining So it didn't 19. do nothing during this That's interim. correct. And let me read you. So what, what, in other words, North Carolina's money in 97 and 98, which was $4 million, went to pay for current expenditures during, North Car during that year, 97-98, but the Commission's money, which amounted to $7 million in that time, was not spent on current things, but was rather a payment for things done in the past. This sounds not — I'm not — I mean, that's possible, but I just don't recall anything that suggests that. Uh, North Carolina's $2 million also would have been paid for past matters. There was not $2 million spent on activities uh, in 1998. That's that's a payment of prior bills. There's th — these oh, — the whole $4 these, million these whole... coming into the — well, you the have the authority still in existence, right? Right. Don't they have any employees? Yes, they do. That so somebody has to be keeping the authority alive, right? Who did that? The admission of no, no, uh, the, the, the authority with funds from uh, — that had come from the commission and from the North Carolina General Assembly. Here's the — No, wait, 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 wait. You said all the commission funds were for prior expenditures. Well, not necessarily. Oh. Uh, that is to say, it, it, uh, it, there, there was not $6 million expended during that period. There's not an exact matchup between that list of when payments were made and when expenditures were made. But the record showed that North Carolina spent, I believe, about uh, — the, the authority spent about half a million dollars those last 19 months. Now, here's the, here's the actual admission uh, that North Carolina, quote, did nothing. A, a paragraph uh, — this is at the Plaintiff's Appendix 460 — the, the, the admission request was, admit that North Carolina took no further steps after December 19th to ensure that an application for a license was filed. <laughs> Response. It is admitted that the authority was deprived of funding upon notification from the Commission in or around 1997 that the Commission was terminating its transmittal to the authority of portions of funds derived from fees and surcharges imposed on generators. It is further admitted that the authority had justifiably relied, the North Carolina authority, on the continued provision of these funds in light of the Commission's previous words and actions. For this reason, the authority did not thereafter take 
thereafter take additional steps what about to cite characterize. What about the offer that Mr. Phillips brought up? He said the Commission was ready to pay another $21 million and there was going to be loans from the generators? That proposal, uh, first of all, left a significant shortfall, as the Master found. Even with that proposal, which North Carolina thought there were some legal problems with whether it would be that loans from generate private generators would allow bonding of the remaining financing. The master says there was still a substantial uh, gap left, even if North Carolina continued to pay the same amount of money. So with North Carolina willing to continue to pay at the same rate it had for the previous eight years, and the commission unwilling or unable to do so, it meant that that level of expenditure by North Carolina would be a worthless expenditure of its taxpayers' money and the Commission's money. The Commission's position seems to be that they should have taken steps just for the sake of taking steps, like building half a bridge to nowhere, when you know that there's no financing in sight. They could have withdrawn on December 19th, and they took exactly the steps that were appropriate, which is not to spend money that is futile. Could I ask you a question? Is all of this money that has been spent or was spent up until 1999, has it been washed away? Meaning, um, and this may be what remains for the unjust enrichment claims, but um, is there any value left to what occurred? I don't know that there is, Justice Sotomayor. I would not assume there's any. There's no facility. As far as I know, there's no value to North Carolina. There's no uh, in that sense, the, uh, uh, the quasi-contract claims. Could I turn, uh, if I could, to the participation of the Commission, which we think raises a, a, um, a substantial constitutional question. This is actually and should be a very simple question. States, either at common law or constitutionally, for these purposes, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you are on in Alden. States have a right not to be subject to suit by parties that aren't the United States or a sister state, absent a valid abrogation. The Commission is neither. It's not a state, and that should be pure and simply the answer to the question. The issues are whether somehow there should be an exception for a compact. It should be treated like a state and allowed to say, or even if it's treated like any other private litigant, there is some kind of same claims exception. In fact, there's one case, Arizona only, which really addresses this point. There should be a same claims exception. First of all, with respect to whether the compact ought to be able to sue as if it were a state, I think that's resolved, uh, and this court, when it rejected the compact suit in Number 131, uh, uh, my, the Commission suit might have thought the same. By the Hess case, it says that compacts cannot claim sovereign immunity. If they don't have the dignity or status to claim sovereign immunity, they surely ought not be able to affirmatively pierce the sovereign immunity of something that is undoubtedly a state. They are that, not. That was a, the, Hess came up in a different posture. Uh, it wasn't, I think. Uh, it was an attempt to, to sue the authority, wasn't it? That is, cor- that is correct. So I don't think that, that they're, they're at all comparable. 
this is a case of does the does the authority have standing to I, you know, bring the claim? You could distinguish one, but the, the, distinguish the two situations. But that would cut in favor of this situation. You might think that a compact has the right to sue as if it were a state, another state, a state, and still think that uh, you might think it, it had sovereign immunity, but not that it could bring a suit against the state. But you certainly wouldn't think that if it's not even entitled to invoke sovereign immunity on its own behalf, that it ought to be able to bring it. But no matter. There's no good argument. With or without Hess, there is no good argument for uh, treating a compact as if it were a state. That is a slippery road. Why, why not? I mean, it's a, it's a totally a creature of states. That's all that's, that's no other shareholders, nobody in the picture, just they're all states that created. The states do not control this private, this separate entity. They create it, it though. They cre- the states create the... The states created it. It is run by a group of commissioners two from each state, who vote individually and are not bound. For example, the representatives from Georgia and Mississippi on the commission voted to bring this litigation against North Carolina. The states of Georgia and Mississippi did not decide to join. They, they voted differently from the where their states are. And, and one of the things about being — the commission doesn't have the same constraints that a state has. The Attorney General of Alabama might think long and hard before submitting a onerous document discovery request on a sister state and making that kind of scorched earth litigation a practice. Something that's not a state doesn't have those constraints. Uh, suppose, suppose we think that the same state or the same claim rule applies, and that if the commission is asserting the same claim as the state that then can sue. Suppose that's the rule. Are these the same claims? They are. First of all, they are not the same claims. The states who gave $25,000 are trying to claim that the commission either is their agent or that they can bring a suit that restitution ought to be made to the commission. That is a, 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 a the short answer is those are different routes. They're not the same claims. How could, how could they not be, Mr. Dellinger? There's only one complaint, and that complaint is on behalf of all the plaintiffs, not — Yes, but you would have the same uh, last line of a complaint if one million people joined a state who brought an antitrust suit against another state. It is simply that — uh, award the plaintiffs such damages as this court deems just. But there's and no discrete claim made by the commission, as distinguished from South Carolina. Yes, the commission is making a straight-up restitution claim, which, as the the entity that provided the funds, it does not. But let me say why I think the separate entities, even if the claims were identical, we don't know at this point that they will wind up being identical. And states shouldn't have to litigate until we find out. The master just says it's not necessarily the case that they'll wind up being identical. Mr. Phillips says, uh, counsel for the plaintiffs said they would not concede that they would not at the end of the day forego any claim on behalf of the, of the uh, states that the commission didn't have. But most importantly, there is Alden. Alden makes this a simple case because Alden says that private suits against non-consenting states present the indignity of subjecting a state 
to the coercive processes of judicial tribunals. If you allow another party in that's not a state, you are subjecting a state to all of the discovery, all of the different theories, all of the depositions, all of the document requests, a sister state may, in its attorney general's office, think twice about doing that. A private litigant will not. So I think this case is uh, that, that I believe if you didn't want to overrule Arizona, you could say it's a case where the United States brought a case in its role as trustee for the Indian tribes. And the tribes themselves were allowed to intervene, and they were therefore virtually one in the same party. Uh, and you wouldn't need to overrule it. I don't think if it stands for any broader principle, it can survive Alden against Maine. Now, if the commission is out, then we think there is — and if you agree that there was no breach of, of, of contract, then I think the Court should direct the dismissal of the quasi-contract claims, because only the states will be left as a party, and those claims, uh, quasi-contract claims and restitution, it's, it's, they are claims that are governed by the subject matter of the compact between the states. And as to parties to the compact, there can't be any such claims. And I think that should be the end of it. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dellinger. Mr. Phillips, you have 10 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I would like to respond to a number of the points that have been made. The, it seems to me the most fundamental one that Mr. Dellinger p- relies upon is the notion that this $80 million was not the money of the compact states. And, and he keeps saying that uh, repeatedly, you, you know, based solely on the fact that the money doesn't come through the Treasury of the states. But he ignores on 12A, uh, Article 4H2B, which says, with respect to the levying of the special fees or surcharges, which was the basis upon which the entirety of the $80 million comes, that this must represent the financial commitments of all party states to the Commission. It was the understanding that in exercising the authority to levy these amounts of money in order to generate this, that that was the state's money, all of the state's money. And ultimately, if this Court were to determine that the money — That provision just says the states don't have to give anything more than that, that that's — what satisfies whatever obligations they may or may have. But where does it say that money belongs to them? It says each state hosting, you know, shall annually levy surcharges. The total of those surcharges represent the financial commitments of all of the party states to the Commission. That seems to me to say that it's the commitment of the party states that's that's being provided for in that context. It's not the money of the Commission. It's not the money of the generators. It's the money of the compact states that's being used for whatever purpose is necessary in order to fulfill the overall objectives of the compact. In this context, it was used to ask North Carolina to go forward to site a facility. I don't, I don't understand that. I'm sorry? It, it never passes through the states, and this provision just waves a magic wand and says that it represents the financial commitments of all party states to the Commission. What proportion from each state do we know? We don't know. And we wouldn't — and the truth is, at the I end — I think all this means is that that is the only financial commitment that the states are obliged to, to make. 
I think there's no question that it, yeah. that it can be read as, as saying that, which, of course, then tells you if it's not the Commission's responsibility and it's not the State's responsibility, then it was clearly from the outset had, and has always been North Carolina's. But I think it goes beyond that, Justice Scalia. I think it actually tells you, as an agreement among all of the party states to this compact, that this is the money of the states, and ultimately it can't if, be the money of the states if you can't say how much of it belongs to each state. Oh no, use doesn't I, make any well, sense. Well, there would be a way to allocate it. There seems to me it may be that either the commission, based on the vote of the parties, part of the party states, could either allocate it back on a pro rata basis, or they could do it on the basis of the percentage of the of the waste that was used in any particular form. There's no specific provision on that, but it seems to me that doesn't detract, Justice Scalia, from the fundamental point that what the compact members agreed upon was that this money would be the money of all of the states. The and therefore, that, we the can't keep it as a commission. The money that's talked about in that section, as I read it, that money that would be generated after the facility was completed. Right, South Carolina in this particular context. As it, the, immediately it would be South Carolina, and ultimately then, if, assuming North Carolina or another state were to site a facility, though, then from there on that money would continue to be that commitment. So you're saying the money generated by the South Carolina facility was the money of the compact members? Yes. And that was the money that was given to North Carolina? Right, because the compact agreed among themselves as part of this agreement that, the, that they would have authority to impose those surcharges on the generators. But as they those, the those states couldn't take the money. They couldn't say, I want my share. Well, I think they could have been saying it's their money, but they had no access to it. Well, no, but I, through their membership, they certainly did. If, if, the, if the states agreed to disband the, the compact and the, and the commission disappears and there's $80 money, million dollars in the pot, that money's going somewhere. It's not staying. It could pay for the legal fund. How, how, I mean, how does it work? The, there's, a, there's a plant in South Carolina. And a truck comes up filled with radioactive waste out of Georgia. Right. And they go to a booth. And now they're charged something. And is the fee and special church surcharge, which this refers to, the total charge? Yes. Total. And what does that amount to primarily? Do you have any idea on a typical? Uh, you mean in terms of the percentage off the no, normal? Well, charge? I don't know how they did it. But, but anyway, there's a charge. Say it's $1,000 or maybe it's 10000 so yeah, this, so, so the, the, the truck company has to pay $10,000 to the authority. Right, the generator does. And they're saying here that that $10,000 represents the commitment of the commitment of all party states to the commission. Right. And all it's saying is that that, that money, even though it does, yeah. I mean, the alternative way to do it, obviously. That money might, seems to come from a private company. It comes right. from a private company. It goes to the, it goes to the, Commission, it goes to South Carolina, right? And they it give it to the, to the commission. commission, and the commission then used it in this context. But that's the basic point, Justice Breyer. If they didn't have this provision, you would you might assume it was the generator's money or somebody else's money. The whole point of this provision was to say these monies, which can only be levied because of the compact and the commission's authority, remain the responsibility of the states, and ultimately, to my mind at least, would clearly go back to them. Just where I wanted to answer your question with respect to findings of breach. January 98, there's the Joint Supplemental Appendix, page 55, makes the, is the Commission's sanction order. In April 99, and again in Appendix 323 and Appendix 412, those are specific findings by the Commission. Could I just understand, and, and I don't know if I'm missing something, your theory that this belongs to the states 
relies exclusively on either an agency or an ownership theory as alternatives? There's well, nothing I mean, else I, that would make it. Well, I'm relying on this provision of the compact that says that is the. That, that's, that's, if we disagree with that. Then we have an agency theory as well. Right, and, and then we have to address. Is there any other theory that would give the uh, states the right to make the claims the Commission is making? Well, I mean, yeah. For the return of the $80 Yes, I think the Court would still have the authority, even in dealing with what is the appropriate rule of restitution, because we're too far away from that at this stage. We're not not there. But I think if the Court finds that North Carolina breached the compact, it ought to try to find a a reasonable way to remedy that particular problem, even if the technical — If we don't do that — what do you left? Well, no, Justice Sotomayor, you do do that. I mean, when the court in Kansas versus Colorado was I trying only posed a hypothetical. Don't, don't, um, if, if we don't, what's left of this case? The, the, it seems to me the court still has the authority in deciding what's the appropriate standard of restitution in a problem as unique as this one to do what it did in Kansas versus Colorado, which is to say, how do we measure the damages to this party? Let's look at what the injury was to the farmers who were completely unrelated to it. They clearly wouldn't have, they weren't parties to that litigation. And the court said that's a perfectly legitimate way to figure out the right damages. So I think we would still have an argument that you, that the court would have the authority to grant that form of restitution under these circumstances. Mr. Dellinger spent a lot of time on what strikes me as sort of a, a complete fantasy with respect to the funding situation that North Carolina faced. I mean, you know, once South Carolina left, to be sure, we lost the ability to take money and help North Carolina. But the notion that North Carolina, if it had completed this facility, was not going to have a license to print money in the determination going forward and that, and that funding wouldn't have been available back in those days is, is not in the record and, frankly, completely counterintuitive because they have a monopoly. That's what the compact specifically provides for them, is the monopoly to be able to control the fees that, uh, on these particular ways. The, 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 the ability to withdraw terminates upon completion of the facility? Yes, six months afterwards. Six months afterwards. So the, com- the facility is completed. It's clear they're going to have to — they're going to be charging more than South Carolina, which is a lower-cost facility, having been in existence for longer. Why wouldn't everybody get out? Because the risk that South Carolina is going to pull up stakes and stop because it's been making that noise from the beginning. It's, that was the reason for the crisis. Washington and South Carolina said, we're not going to take every other country, every other state's waste, and we're getting out of this business. So the, the risk you would take in jumping out in the six months is that you then find out at the back end you have no place to dispose of your waste. So the reality is they had, it, you know, all of the incentives to go forward existed as much in 1997 as they did in 1995 as they did in 1999. The only thing that's fundamental here is they had a responsibility not just to do what was appropriate. It was to do what was appropriate to get a license. And that's what they never did. They walked away. They took no action. Trying to negotiate funding in the abstract doesn't have anything to do with moving forward to get a license. On that score, the authority shut down and closed. Just Sotomayor, you asked, is there any benefit that remains? Well, the reality is geology studies and hydrology studies that get done, those things don't change for a billion years. So every one of those studies that was done is going to be just as valid today, 12 years later. Although I do think the right way to analyze this is not in terms of 12 years later, but what would have happened at the time. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.